When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A newly released review confirms Moab police did not follow the law when they failed to cite Gabby Petito for domestic violence after she and Brian Laundrie were seen arguing last August. Fox 13 News investigative reporter Nate Carlisle has been going through the 102-page report and has more on what changes the city of Moab now plans to make. If I had any discretion of this, I would separate you guys for the day and just give you warnings to stop hitting each other. <laughs> But I lawfully don't have discretion here. Yet veteran Moab police officer Eric Pratt and the new officer he was training, Daniel Robbins, did let Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie go. The report by a Price Utah police captain says that, by law, Petito should have been cited or arrested once officers determined she was the aggressor. The captain sustained, or confirmed, multiple complaints where Pratt and Robbins failed to follow the law and Moab's own policies, including failing to obtain witness statements and properly documenting the roadside investigation. Petito's death has been ruled a homicide. With her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, dead, there is no more effort to determine who killed her. Here on what's labeled page two, the captain takes a moment to ponder, would Gabby be alive today if this case was handled differently? That is an impossible question to answer. For his part, Pratt told the captain he worried taking Petito to jail would embolden laundry. So if he's going to go bail her out, is he not going to have more control over her now? Pratt's quoted as saying. Hey lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst. And yes, I'm back in the intelligence cell once again to talk about Dear Sweet Gabby and the police review. And I want to give a trigger warning. This episode and series may well be triggering and it will be angry making. Listener discretion is advised. I ended part 15 talking about the ABC News clip and how the police review was framed by the presenters. Well, I haven't finished sharing my thoughts yet, and I do want to highlight that this wasn't particular to just ABC. You see, most news outlets would receive a media briefing from the police and the full report. What they'd most likely do, particularly if they received it at short notice, would be to read pages one to four, the statement and synopsis, and then maybe they flick through the other 95 pages, but they would all jump to read the conclusion. Of course, some may well read the whole report, granted, so I can't speak for everyone. But oftentimes, the media want to get the story out ASAP. They want to be first, and they don't always know what they're looking for in a report, unless they're really in the weeds of a case or an expert. 
ABC certainly read the conclusion of the report as they included a quote from Officer Pratt about the impact of what happened on him. Here it is again as a reminder. This is what he said. I do care. I am devastated about it. I cared that day and still care. I don't think the public gets that we... I don't know if they know we care. I don't know if they know. Now I've reviewed many reviews across my career and I've never seen the insertion of an emotional quote from one of the officers before about how it's impacting him. Interestingly, the full quote from Officer Pratt repeats and is on page 98 too, the very last page of the report, as page 99 is an additional list of attached exhibits. So for me, this is a very strong reoccurring message. So the fact it repeats twice at the end, well, that to me, that's the main takeaway. And it's certainly effective in humanising Officer Pratt and making us feel sympathy for him and also making it clear that he, they, the police, do care. Also, the term, in inverted commas, unintentional mistakes, that for me evokes the, oh, well, they do care, they just got it wrong, and they didn't mean to get it wrong, so that's okay, sort of feeling. And so inadvertently, it becomes more about them. And of course, we must remember that Gabby was brutally murdered just weeks after this stop, where there was an opportunity to intervene. Now, full disclosure, I felt like I was being manipulated by these two things in particular. They were red flags for me about the report and the report writer. This is also one of the reasons that when I train professionals to undertake reviews, I recommend that they keep a picture of the victim in front of them at all times as a reminder that this isn't just a process. Someone was murdered and we must honour them and their family in this process and be mindful of our own biases and vulnerability to be being pulled into another person's narrative and letting that overtake. For me, right from the start, Gabby feels lost in this review. So immediately, this was on my radar as I continued to read through the report. Now importantly, as you've heard me say many times regarding behavioural profiling, it's not always about the behaviour that's present. Likewise, when I analyse reviews or reports, for me it's often about what's omitted. That, at times, is more significant, and I mentioned that in the last episode. Having said that, there's a huge amount of information contained within this 99-page report. Almost too much that one might get lost in the detail at times. And admittedly, I love detail. But under pressure, it's a lot to process and analyse and then put into a two-minute clip. Now, even though I'm breaking down Gabby's case in long form, I can't highlight every detail and quote. So I'm going to zero in on the most significant things for me, but it's important to note they're not the only things. But I'm going to start with the first page of the report under the heading Statement on Investigative Review of August 12th Petito-Laundry Incident. And I'm going to read out the second paragraph. This independent agency's investigative report finds that the officers who responded to the incident made several unintentional mistakes that stems from the fact the officers failed to cite Miss Petito for domestic violence. The city acknowledges that this finding may raise questions in the issue as examined extensively in the investigative report. Now you heard that in the ABC clip in the previous episode and now in the Fox 13 clip at the top of the episode. 
And yes, I reread that paragraph numerous times. Mistakes were made, and it's interesting that Captain Radcliffe's views were that they were unintentional. But let me be clear, there were many mistakes, but this, in my opinion, wasn't one of them. This, along with the intentional mistakes, were immediate red flags for me about the report, and this line alone underlines how important it is for an expert to do the review, and an expert who has an understanding in coercive control, and the police policies, and the laws, and the gold standard response in order to conduct a best practice review. You see, I don't believe it was appropriate for the officers to cite Gabby for domestic violence, Full stop, period. As I've already outlined, and it's a very important point, so I'm going to say it again, Utah law is a predominant aggressor law. There are four required factors to consider with this law, and none of them were documented in the actual police reports or discussed throughout the police stop. Now, this basically means that if you're defending yourself or your property or you have a previous history as a victim of domestic violence, just because you may have struck someone first in the particular event, it doesn't necessarily make you the aggressor. And that includes even if you say you are the aggressor. This is why it's important for all reports to be taken seriously and documented accurately, and why all staff should be trained to understand domestic abuse and coercive control. You must expect the power imbalance. You must expect DAVO. All the way through the police camera footage, Officer Eric Pratt talked about Gabby being the primary aggressor, when Utah doesn't even have a primary aggressor law. The law wasn't understood, and I'm really concerned at this point about the reviewing officer's understanding of the Utah Code. Now, I'm going to return to this as more is written about it under Heading 3, Utah State Law. And before I get to what the reviewing officer said about it, as this really goes to the heart of the police stop and whether it was handled appropriately, I want to share with you the rest of the statement on page one and break it down. The report recommends improvements to both the policies and the training of Merb City Police Department. These recommendations include providing additional training in domestic violence investigations, as well as additional legal training to ensure officers understand state laws and statutes. Conducting an overall policy review conducting a software review and strengthening the review process for incident reports. The investigative report also finds a statement was never obtained from the original 911 caller and recommends that be done to make the incident report more complete. The city intends to implement the report's recommendations. Based on the report's findings, the city of Murr believes our officers showed kindness, respect and empathy in their handling of this incident. As the Merb City Police Department continues its daily mission to serve our community, efforts are underway to provide additional resources and tools to assist them in addressing domestic violence incidents. Plans are in place to add a trained domestic violence specialist to oversee incidents investigated by Moab officers. We also will implement added and ongoing training and testing to ensure that the officers understand policies and procedures. The final sentence is... The city of Merb sends our sincere condolences to the Petito family. Our hearts go out to them as they continue to deal with the tragic loss of their daughter. Okay, so let's break that down. For me, the recommendations are fairly bland, and they tend to be ones that you can put into any review. This tells you something right there. 
Also, the fact that the reviewer highlights additional training in domestic violence investigations is needed, but neglects to say expert-led training is a problem. Anyone worth their salt would say expert-led training on domestic abuse and coercive control, particularly with this case. Additionally, he recommends legal training is also needed to ensure officers understand state laws and statutes. Well, of course, this is absolutely paramount, and it's clear to me that neither officer understood domestic abuse or the laws, so it doesn't make any sense to just roll out whatever currently exists. In my opinion, a wholesale review is needed to include policy and guidance and training and law by a leading expert who's up to date and it must include coercive control. It's a missed opportunity not to recommend coercive control law reform and there are some other further updates that I would recommend to the predominant aggressor law including coercive control, non-fatal strangulation, power imbalance, the party's weight and height because that does matter. And so the big picture shouldn't be missed either. But sadly, the reviewer didn't go there. But it's high time laws are modernised to reflect women and girls' experience of male violence. There was also a recommendation to conduct a software review and strengthen the review process for incident reports. In my opinion, it's not about systems failure. Albeit the technology can certainly do with being updated to assist officers, but moreover, the issues relate to the police reports not being completed adequately. Important details were omitted. Both officers inputted inaccurate information. The case was categorised as a disorderly conduct offence and not domestic abuse. Photos weren't taken of Gabby's injuries or documented, and the photos of Brian's injuries weren't uploaded. And they weren't uploaded because Officer Robbins said that he didn't bother to upload them, and no one checked. The supervisor didn't adequately supervise. The 911 caller wasn't spoken with. And these are just some of the failures, and you'll hear about others throughout this episode and the next. The review process for incident reports, well, this recommendation really talks to supervision, or moreover, a lack thereof. And also, I just want to put this on your radar now, the word incident repeats throughout this whole report and it really grates on me. I'll say something about that in a moment. Also, there's no mention of risk assessment and risk management in the recommendation when, in my opinion, there should be. The report also highlights the fact that a statement was never obtained from the original 911 caller. Now, this again is huge and talks to little or no supervision. Then there's a recommendation saying that it should be done to make the incident report more complete. I have to say I find this rather bizarre and perplexing. It's too late now. This really feels to me like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. And I would absolutely recommend that if someone calls 911 that it's vital they're spoken with and a statement is taken. Also, I'm going to come back to that point because I know that information was known before they attended. It's the reason police attended. Both officers should have wanted to know exactly what the 911 caller reported. But in my opinion, what was written up in the report bore little or no resemblance to what the caller said. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, the fact that the city intends to implement the report recommendations, well, that's all well and good on the face of it. But I'll throw this question out there. Are these the right recommendations and learning points from Gabby's case? Now, I've already indicated there's no recommendation regarding coercive control, but neither is there any recommendation about trauma-informed training, which it's evident to me they could certainly benefit from. Also, the penultimate paragraph in the statement on page one, and yes, I'm still on page one, that penultimate paragraph read, Based on the report findings, the City of Mer believes our officers showed kindness, respect and empathy in their handling of this incident. Now, I beg to differ. The misogyny and sexism was through the roof. But the problem is, when you're part of that culture... You don't see it. It's just the norm. But a true independent eye outside of the culture sees it. Now I wonder how many of you identified it straight away? Or did you only see it once I broke it down? What I do believe is that the officers did try and show some degree of kindness, for example, putting Gabby in the aircon of the police vehicle. But I don't share this was an empathetic way of handling the case, particularly regarding Gabby, and given the fact that 80% of the time the officers were with Brian and Gabby was placed in a car where suspects are normally placed. Also, Gabby was patronised. The officers were condescending to her. She wasn't given accurate information. In fact, she was blatantly lied to. She clearly felt alone and isolated and distressed, and that's why she called her mum. A female officer was standing with her for some time, but at no time was Park Ranger Melissa Hull spoken with about what was discussed between her and Gabby. Officer Robbins didn't even know her name for crying out loud. I've highlighted many of these issues, so I won't repeat them here. Also, the fact that the reviewing officer wrote that efforts are on the way to provide additional resources and tools to assist staff in addressing domestic violence incidents... I would love to know what these additional tools and resources are. Also, as I've said over and over, it's experts and specialists who are needed to come in from outside the police culture 
to help the police understand how best to engage with women and how to support victims at the scene. Like I said, they could really benefit from trauma-informed training by experts, yet this has been omitted. I'd also like to see reassurance that the training and revised policies will be piloted, that they'll be road-tested and monitored so that they know how effective they are. And the last comment on page one the comment, the city of Merb sends our sincere condolences to the Petito family. Our hearts go out to them as they continue to deal with the tragic loss of their daughter. Now, it's good that they understand that it must be absolutely horrific for Gabby's family. However, the fact that they say, deal with the tragic loss of their daughter, for me is problematic. You see, to me, a tragic loss implies that there was some kind of act of God, if you will, or an act of nature that disappeared or took their daughter, something beyond your control. Even the word loss I bump on when it comes to murder. You see, for me, you may lose a phone or a credit card, but Gabby was intentionally killed. It was an intentional, brutal act, not some passive accident or event. At the stage of writing and publishing this report, Gabby's body had been found and it was determined to be a homicide. The language here creates distance from the murder and so it minimises what really happened. And of course, this review is about what the police did or didn't do and it is connected. So is this language intentional to minimise and create distance? You can decide for yourself once you've heard my analysis of the report But what I will say here is that the framing of this report, along with the news report, where it says that the only person responsible is the killer, even by page one, for me, there's a number of red flags waving in the wind. Okay, the next section is the introduction, which contains more background information. Captain Brandon Ratcliffe says that he was asked on September the 27th, 2021 to conduct an independent investigation into the way Merb Police Department handled a domestic violence incident that occurred on the 12th of August, 2021. He explains that he was asked to conduct this investigation by Chief Brett Edge and Assistant Chief Braden Palmer. He explains Officer Pratt has worked for Merb City Police Department intermittently since July 2018 and that he returned to full-time employment with Merb City Police Department in December 2020, and that he has approximately 16 years of law enforcement experience. At the time of the police call-out, Officer Pratt was the acting field training officer for Officer Robbins. Officer Robbins was hired in May 2021. Prior to that, he had no law enforcement experience. Officer Robbins was on the final phase of his field training programme when he attended this call-out. Okay, so that's interesting to me because in the early days when I broke down the case on 60 Minutes Australia and also on Real Crime Profile and Crime Analyst, I said that Officer Robbins probably wasn't very experienced and it felt like Officer Pratt was the supervisor or the senior officer. So that's now been confirmed in this report. It's also interesting to me because throughout the review report and his interview with Captain Ratcliffe, Officer Pratt refers to Officer Robbins as the rookie and green, and the greeny, and so on. But in the actual police report, Officer Pratt wrote that he assisted Officer Robbins with his investigation. Now, as a supervisor, your job is to supervise. You're not assisting. 
Yes, you might guide and shape, but the junior officer will take your lead. Or should, if they're at the call-out and the newbie officer is doing something problematic. I witness with my own eyes Officer Robbins being heavily influenced and led by Officer Pratt, and so Officer Pratt is minimising and downplaying his role, and it's not an accurate picture that he's trying to paint. And in fairness to the reviewer, he does pick up on this later on in the report. Also, there's a disclaimer that Captain Radcliffe added at the bottom of the introduction. As part of his investigation, he reviewed the body-worn camera footage and interviewed Assistant Chief Palmer, Officer Pratt and Officer Robbins. The interviews were recorded using an audio recording device. The interviews with Officer Pratt and Officer Robbins were done following the issuance of a Garrity Statement of Rights. He explains that he was watching the videos and was listening to the audio and interviews and he typed up his notes and that he attempted to transcribe the interactions and questions. He said, taking notes in each of these recordings have provided me the ability to document a more accurate and detailed report regarding this investigation. He also states that on a part-time basis, he spent months reviewing the case and that he was provided with the luxury of being able to pause, rewind, fast forward and take notes. And he knows that the same luxury isn't afforded in the grand majority of police investigations and that the officers in this case had about 75 minutes, whereas he had an unlimited amount of time. He also noted that while he has the reports and recordings from the case, and I'm going to quote him now, exactly what he wrote. There are many what-ifs that have presented itself as part of this investigation, the primary one being, would Gabby be alive today if this case was handled differently? That is an impossible question to answer, despite it being the answer many people want to know. Nobody knows and nobody will ever know the answer to that question. My job is to provide information into the details of this investigation and if it was handled appropriately. Now, you may have your own view on that, but for me, this is always the million-dollar question. And the point is, if you can write a 99-page report of all these mistakes... Therein lies the issue. There were many, many, many things that were not done appropriately or to the basic standard of an effective investigation, including 1. Officer Robin spelling Gabby's surname wrong. 2. The problem with inaccurate spellings means that there wasn't a comprehensive check on their driving licences or ID, which meant if there were protective orders in place or if there was a recorded history, it wouldn't have shown up. And that's a huge problem when responding to domestic abuse calls, and it's exactly why great care must be taken. 3. The 911 caller was never spoken with. 4. Officer Robin said Gabby was manic and framed her as having a mental health issue. 5. Officer Pratt stated that there were two witnesses who he spoke with and things were lining up, however, he only ever spoke with one witness. 6. Officer Pratt wrote his report up and stated no one said Brian hit Gabby, but that's not what was recorded or reported. 7. Brian's account was never challenged and he was never asked about him grabbing Gabby's face. 8. Gabby was believed to be the primary aggressor when Utah don't even have a primary aggressor law. 9. The predominant physical aggressor law was not understood or properly applied. 10. There was no risk assessment. 11. No photos were uploaded of Brian's injuries and no photographs were taken of Gabby's injuries. 12. 
there was no supervision of the crime report or the investigation. 13. There was no referral to a domestic abuse specialist. 14. There was no referral to a mental health professional. Okay, they're just the immediate things that jump out at me, and there are more, and I'm going to go through these points. Therefore, I would argue that if all the right things had been done, a different outcome may have occurred. If all the right things had happened and been done and Gabby was still murdered, you would still want to review the case to ensure learning. But my point, as always, in all these horrific murders of women that I'm brought in to review, is that there are fundamental failures with the absolute basic level of investigation. In other words, the basic things were not done well. And that's what we have to firstly identify, address and change. And we are a long, long way off. After all, why have policies, laws and guidance if it doesn't matter if those policies, laws and guidance are adhered to? It also just shows how important it is to get the basics right. And I 100% believe if you get the basics right, the rest will follow. Women and children's lives are at stake and in the hands of professionals every single day. There is nothing more serious than that. Okay, so regarding the report itself, it's not my intention to go through absolutely everything in it, but I will highlight the most significant things that stand out to me. So the synopsis begins on page three, and the review writer outlines that a summary of the facts are detailed in this section, and that the summary is from information obtained from the officer reports, dispatch notes and audio, witness statements and body-worn camera video of the incident. You're probably getting a sense now that the word incident repeats over and over, and it really does bump with the fact that domestic abuse is a pattern. It's why officers have such a hard time registering it's a pattern of behaviour. Also, unfortunately, the report did not include an interview with the original 911 caller, nor a printout of the call. Nor did it include interviews with or statements from the two-part rangers, and their camera footage wasn't reviewed. These are huge missed opportunities and limitations of this review, in my opinion. Under the heading Initial Call to Dispatch, it's written that on August 12, 2021, at 16.39, the Grand County Dispatch Centre received a call from X. Now, his name has been redacted, and he was calling to report what he described as a domestic dispute. He reported he was driving and saw a gentleman slapping the girl. He stated he stopped driving. The male and female ran up and down the sidewalk where he proceeded to hit her. He stated that he hopped in the van and then drove off. He said he took a picture of the licence plate and describes a vehicle and the licence plate information. The caller further describes the make, model and characteristics of the van. Dispatch action was to use the emergency tone and alert law enforcement working in the area and stated they had a report of a male hitting a female and the description of the vehicle was detailed. OK, so it's clear here what the caller saw, and he called it a domestic, and said that the gentleman slapped the girl and that he proceeded to hit her, so there's no doubt about that. Now, under the heading Moonflower Community Co-op Action, it's detailed that Officer Pratt went to the Moonflower Co-op and asked for the reporting party phone number. Whilst there, he spoke with another witness who gave more details on the vehicle. So this is important. 
Officer Pratt did not speak to the original 911 caller. That was an outstanding action, and it wasn't followed up on by either Officer Pratt or Officer Robbins. Next is the heading traffic stop, detailing Officer Robbins pulling over the van and Officer Robbins reporting to dispatch the driver may be intoxicated after observing the driving pattern. Next is the heading Brian Laundry Statements to Law Enforcement. So it's interesting to me that Brian's statement is detailed before Gabby's statement. Gabby was upset and Officer Robbins spoke with her first. So she should really come first. Now, this might feel like a minor point in the scheme of things, but I don't believe it's a minor point for Gabby's family. So I would have placed Gabby first. So there's a lot of detail contained in this section, most of which I've discussed in previous episodes. Captain Ratcliffe also identifies that Brian lies about not having a phone and that Officer Robbins actually takes his phone number down later on and he doesn't challenge the fact that he previously said that he didn't have a phone. He also identifies that Brian called Gabby crazy and some of the smirking and chuckling, but he doesn't comment on the bro culture and the fist bumping that happened between Brian and the officers or Brian saying little website and his devaluing of Gabby. So these little nuances, these really important nuances are omitted. Okay, after that, there's a section headed Gabrielle Petito's statement to law enforcement. There's no mention of Gabby being cut off by Brian when explaining what's going on when initially stopped by Officer Robbins. However, most of the other things that I've already highlighted are included, albeit there are a couple of points that I do want to draw your attention to. For example, Gabby said that Brian also suffered from anxiety as well, and that's when she was asked if she took any medication, and she said she didn't. Gabby also said that Brian kept telling her to shut up and that's why she hit him and he grabbed her face in response. So like I said, his hand over her mouth and nose and his fingernails dug into her cheeks. With this action, he's power and control flexing. Now Gabby said that she did yoga as a coping mechanism, saying that she had anxiety and OCD when she was asked about whether Brian was patient with her. And Gabby said, yeah, but I get, it just makes me upset. I know he definitely gets frustrated with me a lot because I have anxiety and he definitely has anxiety too. So that's all important. Now the next heading is written and verbal witness statements. Officer Pratt called one of the witnesses and although it's redacted in the report, the witness was Christopher. It's detailed that Christopher said it appeared at one point they were fighting over a phone and Christopher thought it may have been Gabby's phone. Also, Brian was trying to keep Gabby from getting in the van, and Gabby hit Brian a few times trying to get into the van through the driver's side of the door. Christopher overheard Gabby say to Brian, why do you have to be so mean? And that, and I quote, it seemed like Brian was trying to leave Gabby and possibly take her cell phone. Also, Christopher said, Brian was trying to close off the passenger side of the vehicle and close things up and said Brian put a backpack or something on the back of the vehicle. So the call was about domestic abuse. The caller who said Brian hit Gabby wasn't spoken with, but the officer attending knew it was a domestic, 
A second witness was spoken with at the Moonflower, Christopher, and clearly described Brian withholding Gabby's phone, blocking her from getting in her van, because I know that the van was registered to Gabby, and that she was recorded as the owner of the van in the police report, and that Officer Robbins himself witnessed Brian hit the curb and thought that Brian was intoxicated. So in the first seven pages, the facts have been established. Yet on page one, it's documented that several unintentional mistakes, in inverted commas, stemmed from the fact that officers failed to cite Miss Petito for domestic violence. Wow, that's completely floored me. Now, I do recall Brian Enton saying something about this when I interviewed him. I wondered about it then, and it was on my radar. And now it makes sense. It stems from this review. Page 1, paragraph 2. And I completely disagree with this. In my opinion, the so-called unintentional mistakes did not stem from the officer's failure to cite Gabby. They stemmed from the fact that they didn't have a basic understanding of domestic abuse and the power imbalance at play when they attended the 911 domestic dispute call-out. They didn't understand the power and control dynamics and that Brian was manipulating them. They failed to ask the right questions and challenge Brian. Also, as I've said before, many of the mistakes were basic mistakes, like getting Gabby's name wrong, not investigating properly, not speaking to the 911 caller, not writing up the crime report to reflect what happened, not understanding the law, distorting facts to fit a made-up narrative, failing to ask Gabby and Brian about the history, which is also a significant failing, as it is a required consideration. They recorded the crime as a disorderly conduct. There was lack of supervision, lack of follow-up, lack of referral to a specialist, and the list goes on. This review misses all of that, and in doing so, reaches a faulty logic conclusion, in my opinion. Can you see how important a review like this is now, and how vital it is that an expert in domestic abuse and coercive control should undertake it? And there's more. On page 13, under the heading Utah State Code, there's a focus on Utah Criminal Code for assault and what constitutes assault, as that's the road that Officer Pratt went down. Now, it's clear Officer Pratt misunderstood the code, and he admits to that on interview. He said he didn't believe Gabby intended assault or harm to Brian, and I would agree with him there. But on page 16 of the report, Officer Pratt also said on interview what he believed would happen if Gabby had been arrested and Brian bailed her out. He pointed out that Brian said they didn't have a lot of money and he mentions control for the first time. Now you heard this quote in the clip at the top of this episode. It jumped out at me immediately in my analysis of the review and now I'm going to read what he said in full. So if he's going to bail her out, is he not going to have more control over her now? Now we're out of money, blame it on her because I had to bail you out. You know, and all it's going to do is put the power and dynamics more on him and in his favour, where he's like, now we have to come back to court or video court. Now we don't have the money because I had to bail you out. Oh, we're in another fight. Go ahead and call the cops. How did that go for you last time? This is really puzzling to me. You see, for the first time, Officer Pratt has mentioned power dynamics, as if he understood that Brian was the actual abuser. Let me be clear, 
There was categorically no mention of that throughout the police stop or in the police report. They were so focused on the fact that Gabby hit Brian and also on the assault aspect that this wasn't even a consideration. So I just don't buy that here in the review. Officer Robbins was asked the same question on interview about how he reached the same conclusion that an assault didn't take place and he answered that he followed Officer Pratt as he observed the code with him and that Gabby didn't intend to cause Brian harm. He was also asked that if he believed it was a mental health crisis, why he didn't signpost Brian and Gabby to mental health professionals. Officer Robbins said that he had a busy day and calls were stacking up left and right and mistakes were made. He said it completely slipped my mind and I didn't think about it. He stated the stress of the situation at the time and everything else going on at the time contributed to not thinking about it. That's curious to me, as he didn't seem that stress getting Brian a hotel for the night and even giving him a lift there. Also, remember it was categorised as a disorderly conduct offence. Well, if it were categorised as domestic abuse or mental health, there would have been follow-ups required. And so that now makes sense to me as to why he categorised it as a disorderly conduct offence when it should have been a domestic abuse offence. Now, on page 18, under section 3 of the Utah State Code, is the predominant physical aggressor section. This is what I really wanted to see. So in this section, it states that the important parts are the following. In determining who the predominant aggressor was, the officer shall consider, one, any previous complaints of domestic violence, two, the relative severity of injuries inflicted on each person, three, the likelihood of future injury to each of the parties, and four, whether one of the parties acted in self-defence. Okay, so you might recall I outlined this in a previous episode, but what's written next to it in red is unfounded. That means the investigation, this review, found no violation of this. Wow, that's completely floored me again reading this. How can that be? So I reread it over and over, and then it became evident to me that Captain Radcliffe omitted one incredibly important detail that turns his conclusion on its head. More on that next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.